1: Hello this is Naked Reflections.
2: I'm Claire Curran
1: and I'm David Perry.
2: You're probably expecting Ed Kessler in the chair this week but he's taking a summer break.
1: So you're stuck with us I'm afraid.
2: So we've listened back through our series and chosen extracts from two of the most popular episodes this year. So sit back and relax.
1: There's this pizza joint in DC where a cabal of satanic child abusers meets to brag about their exploits. The menu cards are in fact coded lists of available children. You choose. The initials of cheese pizza, CP, for example, means child pornography. High profile Democrats, including the Clintons, are regulars. During his presidency, Donald Trump got wind of this and as part of his plan to drain the swamp, Earmarked a day of mass arrests and executions, which he nicknamed the Storm. Got the picture? Pizzagate morphed into QAnon and came close to becoming a mainstream proposition for conspiracy-obsessed radio jocks in the USA. Yet, almost beggars belief. But we've enlisted two guests who can throw some light on that most agrarious of conspiracy theories, QAnon, our subject for this week's podcast. Dr. Ruth Lawler is a junior research fellow at Queen's College, Cambridge, and a specialist in modern American history. Ruth was last on Naked Reflections just before the storming of the Capitol in 2021. And welcome back, Dr. Alfred Moore, senior lecturer in politics at York University. Alfred worked on the Leverhulme Trust project, Conspiracy and Democracy, History, Political Theory, and the Internet. So how did it all get started? On the Naked Scientist show Our Search for Extraterrestrials, Dallas Campbell took a generous view of the origins of conspiracy theories.
0: As long as human beings have been roaming the earth, there's been conspiracy theories. Point is, I think we all are conspiracy theorists, just to various different degrees. We all have probably irrational beliefs that we justify in the secret ways that we justify beliefs.
1: Alfred, is QAnon just another conspiracy theory or is it unusual even for the world of conspiracists? That's a good question. I mean, it is clearly part of
3: a long tradition of conspiratorial thinking. So, I mean, if you think in the America in the post-war period, one of the classic sort of early observers of conspiracy theories, or early critics, was Richard Hofstadter, the historian. And he suggested that the kind of conspiracy theory, as we would call it, what he called the paranoid style, was something that periodically manifested throughout American history. And so he looked at conspiracy theories about the Jesuits and conspiracy theories about slaveholders, all of these kinds of things running up to the John Birch movement and Joseph McCarthy. And you can see a continuity in, let's say, some of the three key features of his paranoid style. One of them is a fact that it's a kind of style of explanation that rejects contingency in human affairs. Nothing is accidental. Everything has some significance or meaning. The people in power are not just clueless, making mistakes or blundering, there's organisation at some deep level in human affairs. The second point is that conspiracy theories often have what what Hofstadter called a kind of pedantic quality. Right, They're obsessed with looking for clues and evidence, sometimes in a kind of pseudoscientific kind of way. They try to sort of style themselves as making sense of the world. And the third feature that Hofstadter pointed out was that they're characterized by a Manichaean dualism, a conviction that the world is guided by good and evil, this simple kind of moral division. So in a sense, you can clearly see QAnon as continuous with a quite long tradition of radical, paranoid suspicion.
4: I think this is exactly spot on. Anne Hofstadter is a great person to do this kind of explaining for us. Two things that are interesting with respect to QAnon in terms of their difference and similarity with past conspiratorial thinking. The first is that QAnon strikes me as a really postmodern phenomenon. It's deeply embedded in online discourse where the idea of truth is somewhat relative, such that claims about fact are difficult to substantiate, and it traffics in a great deal of irony and disavowal, which makes them both very hard to pin down in terms of their claims, but endlessly self-referential. So this also has the effect of creating in-groups and out-groups that contributes to the evangelical fervor that QAnon also displays. But the second aspect is that the QAnon phenomenon has rolled off a number of common themes in historical conspiracies, including, for example, the references to pedophilia, sex trafficking, a global shadowy elite or a cabal are particularly anti-Semitic dog whistles that have echoes in terms of an old document called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a right-wing Russian czarist document proclaiming to find evidence of a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. And that was disseminated widely in the United States in the 1920s, at least in part by Henry Ford, a car manufacturer. And those claims about paedophilia are are really central to historic white supremacism and anti-Semitism. And other themes to do with child abduction or the sort of racial and gendered obsession of QAnon and other far-right figures certainly taps into the child abduction or stranger danger panics of the 1980s in the United States and the satanic panics of that period as well, all of which historians have said were racially coded and contributed to mass incarceration in the United States today.
3: The importance of the sort of fears around sexuality is again a kind of, as Ruth said, a strong connection to older manifestations of conspiracy theory. And I was thinking particularly when she was talking of the hysteria around homosexuality that accompanied the Red Scare in the 1950s. So there are sort of profound fears around sexuality that are running through some of these styles of thought. I would also sort of second the point about the peculiarity of the role of the internet and particularly internet culture in the emergence of this kind of conspiracy theory, particularly its emergence on the kind of deeply anonymous forums of 4chan, which are characterized by these deep levels of irony and of trolling and of indeed game playing, right? So one recent analysis of QAnon that I saw emphasized the way that it's almost constructed as though it's something that people can play along with. It's got clues, it's got these drops, it's got these little sort of bits of information that people can work with and claim some agency and ownership of. So it's being involved like a real live clues, puzzle solving sort of game. And clearly the propagation of it is in distinctive internet subcultures. And it's obviously burst out into the mainstream, but it roots in the peculiar subcultures of contemporary internet culture are also really important to what's distinctive about it.
1: What I think you're saying is there's nothing new. It's just that we live in a slightly different environment a postmodern internet age, which is the context for QAnon at the moment. Is that fair?
3: i say yes. I mean, as with many things, you know, there are continuities and there are distinct features of how it's manifesting now and Distinct affordances in the information environment. There are clearly sort of some distinct things that make this a very 21st century phenomenon, but some of the themes and the style are clearly continuous with older kinds
1: of radical
3: conspiratorial suspicion.
1: Ruth, to what extent do you think QAnon is a specifically American phenomenon? And it's clearly extended beyond that. But on the one hand, there are these old tropes. You mentioned the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, old tropes about sexuality, abuse, and so on. And yet on the other, there seem to be new aspects to it. How global is it? Is it American? Is it global? What are we dealing with here?
4: It's a good question because the roots of the anti-Semitism that we were talking about have European origins and many of the anti-Semitic texts that have circulated in the United States originated in Europe. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, for example, after being circulated in the United States, then made its way back to Germany again in the 1920s. Um, And we can all understand what the consequences of that type of circulation of ideas might be. The context of that circulation in the United States was the first Red Scare. So Alfred had talked to us about the second Red Scare in the 1950s with the rise of the Cold War. In the 1920s in the US, in the aftermath of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, the first anti-communist fervor arose. It was not only anti-Semitic, but deeply racist and fuels a very severe immigration restriction in the United States that lasted from 1924 until 1965 and enabled the flourishing of new forms of specifically American white supremacism, I suppose, that also had a deeply anti-black racism embedded within it. And the U.S., through its imperial ventures, through war making, through its cultural empire, has been able to export some of those ideas and also make them chime with older forms of, say, European racism and and the legacies of colonialism. And so if I could give you one example, many of the uh, Cuban honours have made these awfully racist claims that Michelle Obama is not, in fact, a woman, that she's a man and that the children that she and Barack Obama have are not theirs. And that taps into a very deep history of the denial of femininity to black women. That's a legacy of the enslavement and sexual violence committed against black women during that time. So these are older tropes that come from an American context, but then can be easily embedded or absorbed into local forms of racism or anti-statism. It's also worth saying, of course, that suspicion of the state is a very long standing American tradition. And so it taps into that element as well.
1: And suspicion of the other, of course, taps into the human condition. We are in many ways naturally suspicious, particularly when it comes, you know, we're us and you lot are they. Alfred, is there a sense that the momentum behind QAnon is declining or am I being (laughs) too
3: hopeful? I don't know about declining, but I mean, I think you can take some reassurance from some systematic political science studies of the QAnon phenomenon that have recently been published, which essentially established that it's pretty marginal and that it's pretty stable. What they looked at was they ran some opinion polls over a three-year period nationally in the United States and in the state of Florida and found about 20% of all of their respondents declaring some approval or expressing approval of this QAnon conspiracy theory. And that sort of sounds like a lot, but it's actually not that much. And they find that it's Quite stable. They also found that it was located largely at ideological extremes, like it wasn't an exclusively right-wing phenomenon. So what we hear in the popular sort of culture around this are striking anecdotes, very attention-grabbing claims, but not really a great sense of how widely shared these are, who actually believes it, what they're actually doing with it you know so there's clearly a lot more sort of research to be done on this kind of thing but what's been done so far suggests that well the anecdotal fears we have of this being some major shared belief system that's driving large scale political changes is probably not what's going on it's probably more marginal than that
1: 20% seems a lot ruth
4: Yeah, the Daily Beast journalist Will Sommer, who's been following QAnon for a long time, estimated that between 10 and 30 percent of the Republican base believes in the QAnon conspiracy theory. And a YouGov poll conducted last December found that 71 percent of U.S. Republican voters believes that Joe Biden didn't legitimately win the election. But as to what Alfred was saying, what does that amount to is hard to tell because QAnon is not an organized phenomenon, unlike some of the other groups that we saw at the January 6th Capitol riots. They're not centrally organized. It's a belief system more than a sort of defined group with membership. People are in the movement for a variety of different reasons. It does bring together these strange elements from across the political spectrum. So if you remember the Q Shaman figure um, dressed in animal clothing at the Capitol riots, he's sort of a vegan environmentalist, but also a white nationalist. It's hard to pin down what exactly the sort of common denominator always is amongst this somewhat disparate group. I think the key thing is we need to keep an eye on 2024 because the sort of great reckoning that was supposed to take place, the storm during the inauguration of Joe Biden, didn't happen. So there was a momentary setback for QAnon, but the focus is now on whether Trump will run again in 2024. And for me, the big question is always, what are they allowing themselves to do? That's a good question about conspiracy theories. Sometimes there are elements of truth in terms of identifying state power, doing nefarious things. But to what end is that information put, and why does it focus on some targets rather than others?
1: Our second choice, to coin a phrase, is something completely different. Enjoy. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. If you've read the Song of Songs in the Bible, where that passage came from, or the Kama Sutra, you won't be wholly surprised that religion has been accused of being obsessed with sex. In a previous edition of Naked Reflections, we dealt with the subject of gender and the strong tendency of the Abrahamic religions towards patriarchy. Modern insights into gender fluidity and sexual orientation have certainly muddied the waters for many, not least religious traditionalists. These days, you'll find the rather inelegant acronym LGBTQ+, sprinkled liberally across news items and magazine articles. What about a scientific perspective? Here's an extract from an article by Chris Smith on the Naked Scientists website.
0: Having sex, where two adults come together and give rise to one offspring, is a pretty inefficient way to reproduce. We could increase our numbers much faster if we could simply copy ourselves. Having sex is also downright dangerous for some animals. Just ask a male spider or a praying mantis. The female kills them after sex. But sex is so widespread among both plants and animals that there must be an important evolutionary payoff. So what is sex? Put bluntly, it enables us to mix our genes with those of our partners so that our offspring have half our genes and half our partners, meaning that an infinite range of new genetic variations is possible possibly enabling us to adapt to our surroundings more effectively. Sex is our subject this week,
1: and I'm happy to welcome back Dr. Shannon Shah of King's College London, the Malaysian songwriter and social activist who spoke to us recently about religiously inspired climate justice. But he's also a scholar of religion, gender and sexuality. And with him is couples counsellor Sonia Leach, who worked for Relate a counselling charity for over 16 years, which offers services for every type of relationship. Sonia is also a qualified sex therapist. So Sonia, should we necessarily have genes and reproduction on our minds when we have sex, as Chris Smith implies?
2: Of course not. We should have pleasure and delight on our minds. Hasn't sexual pleasure been called one of God's great concessions? And anyway, plenty of sex has nothing at all to do with reproduction. Post-menopausal sex, same-sex sex, sex with yourself. You know, as Woody Allen said, it's sex with someone you love. Don't knock it. We can't simply clone ourselves, as Chris Smith says. Um, and I think the other is what we are searching for. Because, of course, evolution requires diversity. Opposites attract.
1: Opposites attract. Shannon, would you consider the joy of sex then a spiritual matter as well as pleasure? I would
5: definitely consider sexual pleasure a spiritual matter. And I'm not alone. There's a long and illustrious history in Muslim practice, Muslim religious interpretation of the sacred texts on how sexual pleasure is actually a matter of religious obligation. I remember quite early on, this is back in Malaysia in the early days of my activism with Sisters in Islam, the Islamic Feminist Group, um, and in their response to the more patriarchal and puritanical interpretations of Islam, were recovering traditions where they said, actually, Islam is a very sex-positive religion. You know, sex is not just for procreation. It is for pleasure. And you can locate this within verses in the Quran, for example. I think there's one that's actually quite poetic. It's not quite Song of Songs, but it says, if you are spouses, you are garments to each other. And this has so many different meanings. You know, it means that you take care of each other, you clothe each other. But it's also so intimate because what do you do with a garment? You put it on your body. It's sensual. So there is this idea of reciprocal sexual pleasure within Islam. And we see this in the proliferation of lots of different medieval sex manuals in Islam. I think, Ed, you mentioned the Kama Sutra. So think of these as Muslim equivalents of the Kama Sutra, except they weren't... Exactly just about sex. You know, there were commentaries about relationships and so on. You know, they were immoral. They were funny. They were humorous. Sure, they were patriarchal and they were very heteronormative. But they also had this freedom in thinking about sexual pleasure for Muslims as a spiritual pursuit.
2: That's beautiful. I think probably Christianity has lost some of that. The Joy of Sex was a huge hit when it came out in the 1960s. And it was quite an unusual idea at the time.
5: Well, I have with me now in front of me my own manuscript called The Perfumed Garden of Central Delight Mm. that was written by a North African scholar. We don't know if this is his real name. We don't know if he actually existed, but it's Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Nafzawi, right? So he writes his manual apparently for some vizier or caliph in North Africa, because people want to know, how do we delight each other sensually? I'll just read out the titles of some of the chapters. There are 21 chapters in this very slim manual. You know, it starts with the man of quality, the woman of quality. It goes into the repulsive man and then the repulsive woman. I know, just bear in mind, this is a medieval text. But then it goes into sexual intercourse, sexual technique, names for the penis, names for the vulva. These are actual chapter titles of an Islamic text. I say it's Islamic because there are all these passages of the kinds of herbs people need to imbibe, the kind of practices that they need to make to engage in, to increase their sexual pleasure and their virility. But it's peppered with verses from the Quran and religious invocations Um, And when this text was discovered by French Orientalist, you know, colonialist rulers in North Africa, they thought that it was so scandalous. It was proof that these Muslims were debauched and only had sex on their minds. You know, for them, it was akin to pornography. But having read it myself, I don't think it's actual pornography. It's just it's sex talk. It's talking about sex as just a part of life and a part of your spiritual existence as well.
1: It's interesting because when we think about religion, we tend to think about the sort of Victorian Puritan, don't we? Um, now, that's not just a Christian term. There are puritanical elements to Islam, to Judaism, obviously to Christianity, and frankly, other faith traditions as well. So how did we, with all this sex in our literature... How did we lose it? And what helped us rediscover it? I mean, you talk about the joy of sex, Sonia. I mean, in your work in sex therapy, is there a sense there's a sort of repressed element of sex in in people's lives? What was it that pushed sex down and made it so problematic?
2: A lot of people come for sex therapy because they have a fear of sex and it induces a huge amount of anxiety in them. And this is obviously spoiling their life hugely. And I think it's terribly sad that we've sort of forgotten that adult sex is simply a revisiting of, of the touch of babyhood. You know, where are we regress during lovemaking into that wonderful loss of control when we're being caressed and obviously... Touch is, I think, it's the earliest of our sensations, and added to smell, these things are evoked strongly during sex, and there's nothing wrong with it. That somehow this has been attached to shame, or if not shame, then sniggering or joking. So really, adult sex is simply return to the cuddling and stroking of childhood, but with some added benefits and. Um, it does involve complete vulnerability. And for many people, it's simply not tolerable. That level of intimacy is not tolerable because of conditioning or the way they've been brought up. Or, you know, sadly, they perhaps didn't have very much cuddling in childhood themselves.
1: It's remarkable, isn't it, Shannon, that the text that you've quoted, a wonderful title, The Perfumed Garden of Sensual Delight, is such a strongly Muslim texts based on Muslim uh, scriptures and the Quran and, and doubtless hadith and other passages. I know in the rabbinic literature, there are plenty of very explicit sexual passages and also in Christian writings. I'm wondering whether exploring the difference between love and sex, so the Greek word eros, sensual love, agape, a sort of unconditional love, if you like, is this helpful to sort of unpack how it plays out?
5: I think yes and no. On the yes side, I think Muslims, you know, when they appeared on the scene and when a Muslim territories expanded, they, of course, encountered, absorbed and adapted different cultures and different philosophical and religious systems. So, you know, there's a strong Hellenistic, Platonist strand in Islamic thinking. So, of course, some of this makes its way into Islamic philosophy, for example, um, on existence, on our relationship with each other and the divine and so on. But there are other ways of thinking about love and sex and sensuality within the Muslim tradition. You know, I'm sort of grasping at the edges of my knowledge of this field, but there was a sense of love as an earthly phenomenon and love as a heavenly phenomenon. So there's the heavenly love of the divine And there's the earthly love that's expressed by mortals. And in that sense, you can sort of see maybe that it maps onto this kind of Greek typology of love, where the earthly love is the one that's, you know, um, marked by, you know, sexual relations and physical preoccupations and so on. But there were mystics and even jurists, you know, classical jurists in Islam who said but there's a connection between the two. So even with earthly love, even with these erotic and sexual desires that we have, this can actually mirror the love of the divine for us and our love for the divine. So lots of Sufi poetry is about this kind of, you know, intense longing, very erotic, very sexual longing for the divine and vice versa. Um, And, you know, one of the practices that was cultivated by pre-modern Sufi mystics was to gaze at beautiful young men, without necessarily consummating their relationships. So, you know, this is a kind of chaste sensuality. And within the corpus of, you know, legal literature, people would ask questions like, you know, how far can I gaze at someone? How far does gazing take me? Can I write them love letters? Is it okay if I stroke them? Is it okay if I embrace them and kiss them and even fondle them? You know, and a lot of legal jurists would say, okay, you're hitting the limit here, but this is still fine as long as you don't engage in penetrative sex, right? And this is where I think, Ed, to your earlier question, what happened? I think in terms of the legal tradition within Islam, the way that you know, sexual taboos were interpreted and imposed, it was a very phallocentric way of thinking about sex. Like sex only happened when there was the penetration of a penis into an orifice. And there were lawful orifices that could be penetrated, which is, you know, usually the vagina of the woman that you're married to. And there were unlawful orifices, right? So people bend over backwards, coming with different sorts of rulings about what constitutes sex, what doesn't constitute sex. And I think, I think nowadays, for Muslim communities, we tend to think about this very legalistic dimension of sex, very phallocentric, very
2: heteronormative. There's a, a beautiful Spanish saying, which is, spring needs no gardens, so love needs no frontiers. I love this idea of springtime needing no gardens. We don't need these categories when it comes to love. And falling in love anyway is sort of person-specific rather than stuck with types. For me, I'm not so sure that sex and love are different. They both spring from the same source, which I'm with Freud, the life force, the libido, that energy that reaches out to another person, that you desire, that spark of attraction. But of course, obviously, you can have sex without love, Rape, for example, or non-consensual sex or sex which appears to be consensual but isn't really. And I hate to bring the conversation down to Disney, but the story of Beauty and the Beast it can be understood as a fairy tale of love and sex, where love and sex are personified in the tale as these characters. As the story unfolds, the characters mature and are able to come together Willingly, they dance together, sex and love are aligned together as the beast, sex is transformed into a compassionate human being capable of a real emotional connection.
1: There is an element in what you're saying about Beauty and the Beast, Sonia, where it's as much about the relationship, isn't it? I suppose what I'm trying to get at is the difference in your work between, if you like, relationship counselling and sex counselling? Because there's a fundamental difference, isn't there?
2: There's a big difference. Relationship counselling is a talking cure, and as such requires quite a high level of articulacy, being able to verbalise your feelings, which is not easy for everybody. Whereas sex therapy is behavioural and requires exercises to be done outside the sessions. And these exercises or tasks which you have to do are another way of reaching closeness bypassing you know the arguments that couples have been having until i actually trained in sex therapy you know we would spend weeks and weeks going round and round and rehearsing old arguments that couples had and then sex therapy would miraculously solve the problem very quickly And in my view, I think all couple counsellors should should also be sex therapists or should certainly train in sex therapy.
1: What about judgment, Sonia? Are there points when you can no longer be non-judgmental?
2: There's a sex therapist called Suzanne Lassenza, a US sex therapist. She speaks of queasy moments in sex therapy, which I think is quite a nice expression, and you know, we will have our queasy moments. And um, certainly all sex therapists have heard a lot of distressing stories about sexual abuse and um, nasty uh, coercion and that kind of thing. There's a a lot of horrible stuff out there.
5: I think it's so fascinating what you've just said, Sonia, about the connection between sex counselling and, you know, relationship counselling, because, you know, this manuscript that I've quoted, one of its theories is that Good sex is so important because good sex is what keeps love alive in relationships. So, you know, we tend to think nowadays that, you know, true love is what will make you enjoy a good sexual relationship. Whereas in this manual, it's the other way around. It's you need to cultivate good sex to keep the flame of love burning in your relationship. And that's why sex is so important.
2: Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, in my view, it's a case of attachment makes the love connection but sex provides the glue you know together it's a a great combination
0: thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk